How are we? Good, good, good. Good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, man, good to see you guys. I, uh, by the, the planning center online, which is what we use to schedule people, I thought we'd have like 14 people here today <laughs> because literally like 90 people canceled on serving. So glad to see your guys' faces. I guess it's graduation weekend, right? Yeah. So congratulations to all of our graduates. Uh, yeah. That's right. Life only goes downhill from here. I'm totally kidding. All right. Um, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, We're going to be in Genesis chapter 22 today. Uh, This is where we will camp out for most of the day. We'll jump around just a little bit, uh, but this is where we'll focus. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, would you please, please, please take that, keep that. That's our gift to you. We want you to have the word to be able to read it during the week. And so uh, please feel free to take that one home. Uh, you can also follow along on your smartphone if you wish. If you have the Uversion app underneath the tab section, uh, type in the Well Austin under the events tab, and you'll be able to find us there. We have all the notes, all the scriptures, stuff like that. Uh, you can also find that link in your bulletin that you got when you came in uh, and type that link right into your browser uh, if you want, and you can follow along that way. We say this every week because we mean this. We want your eyes on the word. And so uh, whatever means that is through your phone, through the physical Bible, whatever that is, we want you to see that, man, These are the words of God. We sincerely believe that this is God's main way of communicating to us his love, his affection, and how he would have us live life. And so that's what we want to chop up today. So uh, this story that we're reading today will definitely uh, read best when read through new eyes. And so if you're like a new believer, you're trying to check Christianity out, you're not really sure, uh, you haven't learned or heard much of the Bible, then this will be an encouraging story for you, I think, because if you thought that Sodom and Gomorrah was crazy, Crazy. All right, wait till you see this one. All right, this one's even crazier. But for those of you who may have grown up in church or you know the scriptures decently well, uh, I would uh, encourage you to even pray right now. The Spirit would uh, give you new eyes into this text as a whole because I think we go into the text reading it just totally wrong and almost uh, inconsiderate to the authors and to the Lord Himself when we just kind of read through this like, oh, I know what's going on here. Right? Because the story is utterly profound, and we'll even see the way the authors tried to engage us in how profound it is through the scriptures today. So, where we are, we've been going through Abraham, okay? And this is actually kind of the last week of Abraham's journey. We picked it up in Genesis 12, we're now in Genesis 22, and there's been these 25 years of ups and downs, highs and lows, really God making a promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12, and then all the way until last week, Genesis 21, we see God finally fulfilled that promise. But 25 years is a really long time, right? Like like if I said, hey, uh, your life is going to be so happy. It's going to be so satisfying. But 25 years from now, right? Like you wouldn't leave here probably rejoicing. You would leave here probably mourning. Like, well, what's the 25 years in between that, right? And this is what's happened. But God finally comes through on his promise. And here we are, Genesis chapter 22, Isaac is born, the promised child, the one through whom will bring forth all of God's promises. And then we get to this chapter. So Genesis chapter 22, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son and go to the land, or take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I should tell you. What? <laughs> right? Like, 
Like, is this a joke? <laughs> okay. Is what you should probably almost immediately uh, uh, think about because the author is sincerely trying to almost shock us into attention. Like, we've gotten all these promises. We're reading. We see Isaac is finally born. God has come through. And then God comes down and says, Abraham. And every time he calls out to Abraham, there's this beautiful promise, or there's all of these, uh, this is majesty almost. God appears, and this time he says, Abraham. And he says, here I am. He says, hey, hey, go offer up your son. Right? And that's it. There's no explanation. There's no kind of walking through what God's thinking. He, he just kind of says this. And this should immediately almost make our heart begin to race, like, what is happening Right? Like, like, is this the Lord or is Abraham like on something and he's thinking he's hearing the Lord or like what's going on here, okay? And so uh, imagine like if I came in here today and I said, hey guys, this morning I was, I was driving to church, you know, and just praying a little bit and Matt, I just felt like the Lord was really, really clearly, he just told me, he said, Tori, tell people at the well that I want them to take all of their assets all right, their house, their car, whatever it may be, all of their money, like tell them to withdraw physical cash, all right, and I want you to put it all in a house, all of their precious possessions, whatever, pour gasoline on the house and light it on fire, right? That's what God wants you guys to do today. If I came in here and said that, you'd be like, man, this dude really does need staff, right? He's lost his mind, right? Okay, and we joke, but like, isn't that kind of what the Lord is doing here a little bit, right? Like, like Abraham, I want you to take all of these promises, all of the hope, all of the future, the, the one thing that we've centered all of your life around, and I want you to offer it up as a burnt offering, right? What, what is going on here? And so this is the context of the story that we deal with. If I came in here and said that, you would say, man, Tori's lost his mind. I think it's okay and fair to say without being blasphemous to ask the text, like, has God lost his mind? <laughs> like, what, what's happening, right? Like, like, this is so outside of the character of God that we know, that we've been reading in Scripture. What is going on here? Bruce Walkie, a professor at RTS, he says, Abraham is asked to behave in a way that is illogical, absurd, and to say the least, non uh, non Conventional, thank you. I was reading covenantal and I was like, that's not, that's actually what I typed. I typed covenantal. <laughs> Non-conventional from the human perspective. Like, like literally to say the least is an understatement, right? Like non-conventional, absurd, illogical, like, like to say the least is true. This is not like the character of our God. In fact, in some ways, we would actually see this as counter God because we have the law that says thou shall not murder, Right? Or, or we have these understandings that uh, humans are made in the Imago Dei, and so all of a sudden God is asking something that seems kind of contrary to his character. What's going on here? Right? This is supposed to shock us into uh, a, a presence. Right? So let's chop it up. Okay? Let's chop up the text here. One of the things that we see right away is that the first time that God spoke to Abraham was actually in Genesis chapter 12. This is the last time that God speaks to Abraham here in Genesis chapter 22. And what happens is, is that they both carry an identical command that God gives to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, there's a command, and here there's a command. In fact, the Hebrew word is uh, leki leka, all right? And that word is used nowhere else in the Bible except for Genesis 12, 1 and Genesis 22, 2. 
And so what we're seeing is these are kind of the bookends of the faith, of, of Abraham's faith. This is the climax of Abraham's story. He started off in Genesis 12, and now here comes the climax. Here comes what we've been waiting for. The fact that the author would use a word that's used nowhere else is trying to identify that with us. And you see the similarities there between Genesis 12, 1 and Genesis 22, 2. So we have a climax. Furthermore, uh, God calls Isaac Abraham's only son. Well, what about Ishmael? All right, like, like, wasn't that Abraham's son too? In fact, at one point, God literally told Ishmael that he was a son of Abraham. And so why here is he saying, your only son? Well, what the author and what God is really trying to draw attention to is that this is the son that was the promised son. This is the true son. This is the son through whom all of the covenants would initiate and ratify. It would be through Isaac. And so in a lot of ways, Isaac is the only one that can fulfill God's promises. And that way, he's kind of the only son to that extent. And so we see this intimacy that Abraham clearly loved him. They've been waiting for 25 years. God finally came through. This is his beloved son. And then we see another word in there that's really significant. It says, your only son whom you love. That's really significant, right? And it may not seem like it to you, but if you just do a quick concordance search, this is actually the first time the word love is used in all the Bible, the first time the word love is used is here in Genesis 22:2, and it's Abraham's love for his son. So the author is introducing a new word into the context, but not only a new word, probably the most important word in any language all throughout human history, this word love that means so much to us and it meant so much to the Hebrews and it's meant so much to every culture. God introduces this word to show Abraham's affection for Isaac like this is intense and so we might not immediately get the picture when we're just reading it in in 21st century mindset and we're kind of separated from Abraham but you got to put yourself in here this is his only son the one that God has promised there's been 25 years he loves him the author's trying to show the significance of this he says go and sacrifice him all right so let's keep reading verse three so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now Abraham, though probably in complete shock and probably confusion, we see is immediately obedient to what God has called him to do. Notice it doesn't just say in the morning. It says in the early morning. Right, like, like Abraham didn't even wait around for the sun to come up. Like immediately he's obedient to what God is calling him to do. Here and throughout this whole story and really the story of Abraham, Abraham is showing his dependence, his trust, his faith in God. Abraham believes God, right? Like, like he has a faith, a faith that would bend even human wisdom and logic and reason. Abraham's willing to bend through that to just trust God. Because in our minds, this makes absolutely no sense. And I'm sure that Abraham thought the same thing. James says that faith without works is dead. And Abraham is proving that he has true faith because his works, his obedience, his actions toward God are proving that he truly believes who God is. Because who in their right mind would do this unless you actually believed? And so Abraham, we see his trust, his, his belief in God, and in this, he becomes a model for all of us that would come afterwards. In fact, this is why Abraham is often referred to as the father of faith, 
Because in a lot of ways, he was the first one to model for us just complete and true faith in astounding and in beautiful ways. And so I think it's right for us to pause and ask just a question, an easy question that we can begin to ask our souls as we try to identify with Abraham. And it's, do you trust God even if it doesn't make sense? Do you personally trust God even if it doesn't really make sense? Because I think a lot of times God calls us into things that they don't really make a lot of sense at first. I mean, does this make sense? By no means. And so are we willing to trust God? I mean, he's proven trustworthy, hasn't he? Like, he's promised Abraham, he's delivered Abraham, he's protected Abraham. Even when Abraham bumbled around in his faith, as we've seen, and tried to offer up his wife or tried to find the promise through Lot or all these different things, God continually delivered Abraham. He protected Abraham. He's trustworthy. But do we trust him? Because I think he's proven trustworthy in our lives, too. But then when it's time to step out in faith, it's, it's hard to do that. Do we trust God even when it's not making sense? Abraham is obedient. And you see, he's, he's not questioning God here. He's immediately moving into action. In fact, look at the verbs that are used here, right? Rose, saddled, took, cut, arose, went. These are all action words. We don't see Abraham like Moses was when God called him to act saying, yeah, well, wait a minute, God, but, but, but what are you doing? Or I'm not that great of a communicator or I need somebody else or Pharaoh's not going to listen. And what Moses did was question God. And I think that a lot of us are there too, and that's okay. But Abraham, the father of faith, shows how much he trusts God because immediately he moves to action. The author doesn't show any hesitation, but it's action, action, action. And so he moves, Abraham uh, begins to move into action. And what you would actually expect the author to say is, so Abraham went with Isaac. Because that would actually be keeping up with Moses' writings so far. Moses kind of fast forwards us through any like monotonous thing. But instead, what Moses does is he slows down here. And he begins to show you every one of Abraham's actions. Look at what he did from the beginning of the morning till they left off on their journey. Moses, in a lot of ways, kind of slows the movie down. Like, do y'all remember The Matrix when it came out? When The Matrix first came out, I watched it, and then I went home with my brothers and tried to, like, play The Matrix, and we set up a little, like, recorder, and we were, like, moving in slow motion, but then I jumped and kicked him, which, like, you can't do in slow motion, and I kicked him in the throat, and then he, like, <laughs> fell down. I thought I was going to kill him, okay? But it was, like, so cool, right? Because the movie would be moving all fast, and all of a sudden, it would, like, slow down to show you the important details, this is what Moses is doing in some ways. He's moving fast, moving fast, but all of a sudden he slows down and shows you all of the details. He's going to great lengths to explain everything so that you don't see Abraham at 30,000 feet, so that you're literally almost there with Abraham. In fact, if you're reading this story correctly, you should begin to feel your heart starting to pump a little bit faster with some anxiousness because you begin to realize what's happening here. This is the promise of which your salvation rests on. Right, like, like if through Isaac will come the blessing of many nations, that, that all the nations will be blessed through this child, then, then it depends on him for you to even come into relationship with God. Like, man, this is crazy, right? And so it slows down in that way. This should signal the significance. Notice, too, the actions that Abraham took, and notice what he did last, right? It says that he got up, and then he went and he got his donkey ready, and then he went and he got two servants. Hey, come on, guys, help me with this, you know. And then he got up his son Isaac, and then he went and cut wood for the burnt offering. Like, like it's almost as if throughout Abraham's process, he's kind of like just waiting, right, 
for God to be like, uh, you know what, never mind, bro. Different plan, right? Like you see him. So, so you do see this is, this is a, a, a turmoil in his soul, but he's following through with it anyway. And so they're off on their journey. Verse four, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So all of a sudden, we're three days ahead. So there's your fast forward again, right? Like that journey didn't really matter. But now, watch again. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. The text, once again, it builds tension here, right? In fact, throughout this text, it uses the word father or son 15 times. It is trying to remind you, it won't let you forget the relationship that this is here. Like this isn't just anyone, this isn't just just something happening. This is a father and a son, a promised son in that way, right? It's like one of those movies that's like too intense for my wife to watch. Sometimes we we rent these movies and it's like too much for her, right? So like 60% of the movie, she's not watching it, she's watching me. And it's like, tell me when I can look, right? Like, this is what the author is doing in some ways. It's almost too much for us to, to kind of gaze upon. Like, like, what is going on here? He takes in his hand the, the knife and the fire, and they're walking up, and you see this intensity that's going on. Notice, too, that Isaac is old enough to carry the wood up the mountain by himself, okay? So this isn't like infant, child, baby Isaac. Like, this is teenage Isaac able to carry enough wood to offer himself up, that's a lot of wood. And able to carry it up his back and able to talk to Abraham and say, hey, hey, where, where is the lamb for the burnt offering, right? So that means that Abraham and Isaac, they've shared memories together. They've shared stories together. Abraham, for the past 13, 14, 15 years, has been dreaming for Isaac and with Isaac, right? Like, like this is the promised child. Think about what is resting on Isaac's back as Abraham is looking at him and trying to answer these questions, this is a child, right? I mean, so for sure, like if it's a, a six-month-old, like, man, that, that's really, really hard. But, but man, like a 16-year-old, that's even that much harder. And so the story, once again, is building tension. In fact, we actually see one of the few times in scriptures a good father. One of the important things that we often see is that there's not many good dads in the Bible. But what we see here is Isaac actually understanding what sacrifice is. And so Abraham not only has shared memories and stories and and all of these things, but he's actually seemingly shared the faith with his son. He's discipled his son in that way because his son knows we're supposed to have some animal. What's going on here, right? where's Where's the lamb? And Abraham says, hey, God will provide. And Isaac is probably trying to figure out what does that even mean? And so we see a good dad here. Keep reading, verse nine. When they came to the place... Of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. 
Notice again, the narrator slows down in a lot of ways. He's, he's making you focus. He bound, he laid, not just laid the wood, he laid it in order, right? Like he's thinking, he's waiting on God. God, what are you doing here? Then he bound, laid, reached all action verbs once again. Abraham continues to move, but we see him almost like, God, what is happening here, right? Now we saw a few verses ago that Abraham actually believes that Isaac is going to come back down with him. Because in verse 5, he tells his two servants, I and the boy will worship, and we will come back down together. And so Abraham believes that in some way, shape, or form, God is indeed going to provide. We even see that there in verse 8, where Isaac says, hey, hey, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide. So he understands the character of God. He, he knows that, that there must be something up, but he doesn't know what that looks like. And in Hebrews chapter 11 gives us insight into the story as well. If you want to flip there, keep your finger in Genesis But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, it says this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham's not really sure what's happening here, but, but we see his faith to this extreme extent. He trusts God to fulfill his promise. He knows that God is good. And so even in the midst of all this chaos and turmoil, we see Abraham is truly willing to trust God. An important sentence that you can write down, it'll be on the screen, but Abraham's faith in God's word enabled him to see God's present command in light of the former promises. Abraham's faith in God's word was allowing him to see this present command, to recognize the former promises of God, to realize God does not change. The scripture said, is God a man that he should lie? No, God is never going to lie. He will always tell the truth. And so something must be happening here. And Abraham was willing to put his faith in the word of God, what God had spoken to him, the promises of God over his own emotions, over his own actions, Even though it doesn't make sense, God has proven himself over and over again. Why in the world would he fail now? So I think a second question that we can ask ourselves is, do we trust God even when we can't see his plans? When it doesn't make sense, when we can't see his plans, do we then decide to trust God? Because let me tell you the truth. It's really, really easy to trust God when things make sense right? Let me rephrase this. It's not really, really easy. It's easier, right, to trust God when things make sense or when you know that there is something positive to be received from it. And so if I said, hey, if you sing really loud during the next worship set, you're guaranteed like $500,000. You'd be like, bless the Lord, oh my, right? You'd be singing because that's a blessing for you. Right? But what about something like this? What about when you can't see the plans? What about when it doesn't really make sense? Then are you willing to trust God? Then are you willing to put your faith in him? Then are you willing to to lean to the word of God, to believe that God is true, that God has never failed on his promises, and move then? That has to be the question. God's word will never fail. God will never lie. But that's hard for us to believe. It's easy to obey when it makes sense, but what about when God's calling you to something, when he's testing you in that sense? So the knife is raised, Isaac is bound up, Abraham is about to slaughter, the word says, his son, okay? And let's pick it up, let's keep reading. So Abraham killed Isaac and God said, thank you. (laughs) Totally kidding. (laughs) You're all like, I don't see that, where's that at? (laughs) Verse 11. 
But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your, your son, your only son from me. And Abraham, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said, to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Whew, right? Like, like God comes through. You know, he, 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 he fulfills his promise. He, he delivers Abraham. There's a really important word here, though. In, in verse 13, you see that word, instead of, is what the English is translated. This is the first mention of substitutionary atonement. Okay. Yes, those are English words. We just don't use them a lot, right? Okay, to substitute means to replace instead of. Atonement means to be made right. So God provided a ram in place of Isaac, instead of Isaac. On behalf of Isaac, the ram was killed instead of Isaac. So this is the first scene where we actually see this important theological concept that God would punish something else in order to free someone else. And we see this offering happen here. So God provided. We'll touch on this more in a second, but let's finish our text. Verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. So God reestablishes the promise. He, he reaffirms this commitment. Why? Well, verse 16 tells us, it says, because you were going to offer up your son. Because Abraham was obedient to the promise of God, God came through on that promise in that way. And so I would ask, what is the call for those of us that are reading it today? Well, it's the question in some way. And really the final question, which is kind of alluded to in the first two questions, but are we willing to give everything we have to God? Do we trust God with everything? That's important. Right? Because if, if not, then, then how can we watch God move? How can we begin to see this? Hebrews 11.6 is an important verse in here. Hebrews 11.6 says this. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I remember when I very, very first got saved, okay, I would pray these things like, God, I want to please you. I want to honor you. I, I want to make you happy because I was understanding what it cost for me to come into light out of darkness. I saw what he was doing. I, I felt this newness. I was coming alive and I said, God, I want to bless you. I want to honor you. And, and, and here's the answer, right? Faith pleases God. It's worship to God. It's, it's an offering to him in that way. This verse made far more sense once I started having children, okay? Because I would tell my daughter, specifically Micaiah, because she's older now, I would tell her to do something, right? Now, I'm the dad, okay? 
And that means I, generally speaking, know what's better than a three-and-a-half-year-old. Right? Every once in a while, maybe I'm off, right? But 99.6% but of the time, I know what's better. And so I know what's best for her. I know what's good for her. And she would fight and she would push back against me, literally fight and push back, right? Like punch me in the nose, kick me like she doesn't want to have any more siblings, okay? And this would happen over and over and over again. And I mean that sincerely, right? But then I realized as I was looking at this verse, like this began to make more sense once I lined it up with me and Micaiah's relationship. Because when she would say things like, okay, daddy, okay, and then she would run off and do it, I, like, she would just trust me. She, she would have faith in me, and, and it would please me. Why? Because it, like, stroked my ego? No, she's three and a half, right? <laughs> Not at all. But because I realized she is trusting me, right? Like, like she trusts me. I freaking love her, and she's beginning to see that. She's beginning to realize that. She's beginning to understand, oh, he has my best interests in mind. So I would like to eat 12 more slices of cake, but I'm just going to say okay because apparently he knows better. Now, the cake is tempting, right? And sometimes I want to eat 12 more slices of cake. But when I'm looking out for her, like, it makes sense. And this verse began to make sense because when she was doing what I was telling her to do, she was realizing it was good for her. I was pleased because I want her good more than almost anything else in this world. And more than almost anything else in this world, when she responded, it gave me joy. She's getting it. She's realizing it. And our relationship began to be made more whole. Why? Because we were able to connect where I was able to help lead her and guide her into truth, into, into, into rightness. And isn't this true with God? Like, like, why does God want our faith? Because it somehow strokes his ego? Listen, friends, God doesn't need us to stroke his ego. He's God, right? Like, like he's got this. He, he has the Son and the Spirit and the angels around him, and if he wanted to create beings just to worship him, he would do that. He has done that. And yet, in some way, he allows this interaction with us, this, this personal relationship. Why? Because when we trust him, he's realizing we're getting it. We're getting it. We realize how much God loves us. We realize what he has done for us. We're beginning to make sense. Remember, at the start of this series, we said that in order to become fully alive, we have to fully surrender. Why? Because when we fully surrender, we're completely God's, and God begins to do what is best for us because God is better in control of our lives than you are. No amens? <laughs> right? Like, like, that's true for me. Whenever I try to take control of my life and, and drive it to where I want, I end up crashing into a tree, right? But whenever God takes control, we get to the destination. Why? Because God knows what he's doing. See, what happened is in Genesis chapter 3 is that when the fall happened and we were separated from God, we began to believe the lie of Satan. God is not good. God is withholding from you. God just does not want you to be happy, whole, fulfilled, whatever it may be. And when we begin to act without faith, when we don't trust God, then we're just believing that lie again, that somehow God is out to get us, that God doesn't love us. But when we have faith in God, we're getting it. This is why it pleases God, because he loves you. He freaking loves you. Far more than I love my daughter, far more than we can even imagine. God is for you and wants your joy. And when we trust God, all of a sudden it all begins to click. And we surrender and allow him to be God. 
And he is able to interact in our lives in a way that is best. And this pleases him. And ironically, it's worship to him. And within that worship, it is our joy. It is our joy. But it's hard sometimes because we don't really trust God that much. We would like to, a lot of us, but we don't, right? And so there's that dance. And so why does God even test Abraham in the first place? Because he's trying to kill not Isaac, but Abraham, He's trying to make Abraham release control because when he's fully released, he becomes fully alive. And this is what happened in that way. And we see how much we love him. When when we are able to release control and we are able to trust God, what we really do is we smack the enemy in the mouth, right, who lies to us. And we say with David in, in Psalm 84, 11, God withholds no good thing from those who walk in him. No good thing. Does God withhold? Romans 8, 28, all things work for good to those who love him, right? That doesn't mean that we get whatever we want, but that does mean that that good will always come out of everything. Why? Because God is for us, friends. He's for you. He's for you. This is the truth of this text. So do you trust God with everything? Okay, or uh, maybe a better way to ask it is, what do you not trust God with? What would you not be willing to lay on the altar at Mount Moriah, right? Like, like is it a job or, or an emotional feeling or status, right, or a relationship or, or, or maybe future promises, a future relationship or whatever it may be? Like, if God came to you in a day and said, you know what, you're never going to make more than 40K in a year, would you be like, man, that's great. I love you, God. <laughs> right? It's hard, right? That wasn't even meant to be funny. I was being serious, right? Like, that's hard, right? Do you trust him enough? Do you realize that he's good, that he is keeping your best interests in mind? Because maybe if you started making 80, you would actually commit idolatry and you'd worship money instead of him and you'd be miserable. But instead he protects. Do you trust God? What are you not willing to put on the altar? That has to be what we ask ourselves because this is the point in that story in a lot of way. And I pray that if you don't have something in your mind right now, that the Spirit would convict you and literally begin to tell you, what are you not willing to put on that altar? Because none of us are perfect. And so for all of us, there's something, right, where we are wanting to control, where we don't trust that God is good for us. So here's our story. The, the offering of Isaac by Father Abraham. Amen? We're still left with a big question, though, aren't we? Like, like, if you still don't have a little bit of a question, I'll just tell you, you're not critical enough of the Bible, okay? And because of that, you're actually going to miss a lot in the Bible if you just kind of allow this to plow through. Because, like, like, for real, he asked him to kill his kid, right? Like, like what is this, okay? Let me ask you like this. Couldn't God have tested Abraham's faith in another way? Right? Like, like besides this crazy absurd command, like, like couldn't he have tested it in another way? And here's where this story begins to drill in an even deeper level. Because if we just take this story at face value and we try to do this, then we walk out of this room with a works-based mentality that says, I have to please God, so I need to do something. I need to, to believe more, to, to surrender more, to give up more, whatever it may be. But there's a deeper aspect to this story, a deeper truth in some ways. When I was in high school and college, you know, if you played sports in, in, in high school, college, even in middle school probably, you probably had a coach that said something like this. Well, I'm not asking you to do something that I didn't have to do myself. Or maybe a parent, right? Even parents would say that, right? And you're looking at this coach, 60, 
overweight, probably can't run 20 yards without being winded. He just asked you to run nine miles, and you're like, I don't believe that. <laughs> All right? You don't serve an out-of-weight, out-of-shape, old God. God is not going to ask you to do something that he himself is not willing to do. And that's where the story becomes utterly profound. This, friends, is an absurd story. When you read it, you should say, this is absurd. <laughs> this is an absurd story. It is illogical. It is, it is crazy. It doesn't make any sense. It is absurd. It is absurd. It is absurd. Do you know why? Because this is the story of the gospel. The gospel itself is this scandalous, crazy, nearly absurd story. See, in Genesis 3, when we were separated from God, when we wanted to be our own God, we were kicking and screaming against God. We were pushing him away like our kids do to us, right? Even though he wanted our good, we were fighting and fighting. And if I asked you, how do you think that you should get back into a right relationship with God? Nobody in this room would say, I think that God should kill his son. That's how I think we should be reconnected to God. I think he should offer up his son as a sacrifice. Nobody in their right mind would say that, but that is exactly what God did. Friends, 2,000 years after this story, another promised son came, the promised son. In verse 16, we see that, that God tells Abraham, through your offspring, singular, not offsprings, plural, but through one child, all of the promises would ratify. Paul says this in Galatians 3, that God didn't mention all these multiple kids. He mentioned one kid, that through him, there would become uh, all the nations will be blessed, that we would have a promised land, a true and better promised land, not just Canaan, but heaven, that we would be able to be blessed, that we would be brought back into relationship with God. And friends, the seed was born, Jesus, Jesus Christ. This is a story, a foreshadow, a picture of what it really looked like. Go back through the story and begin to think about the context. In verse 5, Abraham and Isaac traveled up the mountain alone. And in the New Testament, we see that everybody left Christ and he was left alone. There was nobody, just him and his fear in a lot of way. We see that they went up the mountain just like Jesus went up Mount Golgotha. We see in, in, uh, in verse 6 that the wood gets laid on Isaac's back and he has to carry it up. And in John verse, chapter 19, verse 17, it says that Jesus had to carry the wood of the cross up his back by himself. We see him call out to his father, Father, right, where is the sacrifice? However, in Matthew 27, Jesus also calls out to the father, but the father doesn't answer him. See, Abraham answered Isaac, but the father didn't answer Jesus. Why? Because at that moment, there was separation. And at that moment, Jesus was paying for the sin that you and I should be paying for ourselves. We keep going. Isaac asks for a lamb. And Abraham says, God will provide a lamb. But then in the story, God provides a ram. Why? Because many years later, God would provide the lamb. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is the promised child. This is the fulfilled one. In verse 13, it says that the ram was sacrificed instead of Isaac. And in the New Testament, it says that Jesus was sacrificed instead of us. This whole story screams with the gospel implications. And the reason it's absurd is because this is the price of your salvation. If you've ever doubted that God loves you, then you should look at the story and realize that doubt should be gone. 
God loves you so much. See, when you're reading this story, it seems absurd. It should. That's the cost of your soul, friends. That's the cost of what it takes to reconnect you. But Jesus paid it. He paid it because he loves you. John 3.16, for God so loved who? The world, us, me, and you, that he gave up his what? Only son. Just like Isaac was his only son, the one whom God loved, Jesus. He gave him up that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. This is the story of the gospel. This is why it's absurd. This is why it's mind-boggling. This is why we can't even grasp it or get control of it because God was trying to show Abraham and the Israelites and us that this is an absurd cost, but I am willing to pay it because I love you. I love you. I love you, God says, so much that he would do what it takes. This is a beautiful picture of what it cost. So how do we apply? Well, if you don't know Jesus, man, what is stopping you from this? From this love, right? Like, like you can enter into a lifelong relationship with the God of the universe. Who will love you like this? No one. No one will. Yes, life is chaotic. Yes, things don't always line up. No, you may never have all the answers till you finally get there that day. But this is enough, friends, because no one's willing to do this for you except for God, even though we don't care about God at all. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like, like we were shunning him and he reached out to us. Friends, this is salvation. And so if you don't know him, man, what is stopping you? What's stopping you? What doubt, what fear, what worry can't be overcome by this? And if you do know God, friends, if you are believers, if you're Christians, if you profess him, now let's re-ask the question, what aren't you willing to give up for God? Because when you realize that God gave up his only son, and as we read earlier in 1 John 3, if God is willing to give up this, see what love God has for us. Romans 8.32, right? If God would deliver up his son, won't he also give us all things? When we see in light of the gospel, we're able to surrender to the gospel a lot easier. So then when God tests us and when he offer, asks something from us, it's far easier to give it, friends, far easier. And so this is the story of the gospel. There's no clearer or better picture, I would argue, in all the scriptures than this because we see the absurdity of it here. We see it, and this is God's affection for you. Fall at the cross and believe in him. Believe in him. Believe in him, friends. Have faith. He is worthy. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, I know I, I am not willing to give up my life, my comforts, various things because for some reason I believe that they're better than you. God, I repent and I ask that you would forgive me personally for not trusting you, for not having faith. God, even when I do want to trust you, I get selfish and I think about what it would benefit me. God, forgive me, forgive us, help us to see that you are worthy. God, who would do something like this? Everything else, all other religions, all other philosophies of life, all other self-help, everything else puts the burden on us and tells us to be good enough to achieve something. Jesus, you 
instead came down when we were not good enough and achieved it for us where we couldn't. You asked for nothing but our faith and our trust in you, which that makes sense. That's the key to any relationship. So God, help us to believe that. God, I pray for those that may even be wrestling with you today, that maybe even right now, Spirit, that you would move into their hearts and regenerate it, make it come alive, that they would pray even right now for you to come in, that they would lay their lives down before you, that they would pray something like, God, I believe you, I trust in you, help me to believe you more, and God, I pray that would be all of our prayers today. God, I believe you, I trust you, help me to trust in you more, Jesus. Thank you for the cost of salvation, that you were willing to pay it for us. We love you, Christ. I praise things in your very beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Um, hey, we're going to sing a couple of songs to close out this morning. And we get a